to the Better Money, Better World Show, a podcast project of Impact Capital Managers, or ICM. ICM is a group of investors who believe that by solving the world's greatest challenges, we will generate market-leading returns for investors while bending the arc of human history towards sustainability and justice. ICM members have backed companies ranging from Tesla to Coursera to Vital Farms. Collectively, ICM's 60 members manage over $12 billion. I'm your host, Daniel Pianco, a co-founder of ICM. My day job is co-founder and managing director of Achieve Partners, a leading investor in education and human capital. Here on Better Money, Better World, we'll explore the stories of our investor members, the companies we're building, and the limited partners allocating money to investors who don't just seek alpha, but also to leverage their capital to build a better world. Episodes will be released each week and feature a new guest telling their own unique investment stories, strategies, and perspectives. And we've got lots of great guests lined up. So if you're excited about what this show might teach you about impact investing and the people behind it, make sure you subscribe to Better Money, Better World, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to highlight the work of impact investors and grow the community of impact investing. Now, with that out of the way, let me introduce you to our Better Money, Better World guests. SJF Ventures has pioneered venture-like growth in sustainable businesses since 1999. Co-founded by Dave Kirkpatrick, SJF has grown from its roots as a CDFI-supported venture capital firm with only $17 million under management to a recently closed $175 million traditional venture fund. Over the years, Dave and the SJF team have backed epic wins like recent IPO Vital Farms and Next Tracker, which was sold to Flectronics, to more recent investments like Jopwell. Dave started his career as a recycling CEO, but realized before impact investing was a hashtag that there existed a large number of mission-aligned entrepreneurs seeking investment capital. SJF was the first institutional capital in Vital Farms, which bought organic eggs from a network of Mennonite farmers. With its unique supply chain, Vital Farms co-founder Matt O'Hire wanted an investor with shared beliefs. But SJF did not start as a food and agriculture-focused firm. Instead, SJF was initially called the Sustainable Jobs Fund, founded with the belief that environmentally driven companies would create good jobs. But today, SJF has built deep expertise across verticals like healthcare, education, and the environment. Dave is joined by Emma Sisman, the former captain of her college lacrosse team, and the lead at SJF for implementing impact and growth strategies across their 30-plus portfolio companies operating in 25 states. Listen to how SJF drives high impact and high growth at the same time. Thank you very much for joining us on the Better Money, Better World podcast. Great to have one of the original impact investors, Dave Kirkpatrick, uh, founder of SJF Ventures, as well as Emma Sisman. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us, Daniel. Um, Could we start by you describing a deal that represents your style of investing and what makes SJF such a special place? Sure, sure. Emma probably won't be surprised. I want to talk about Next Tracker, uh, one of my favorite solar deals. But this is a company we've invested in solar for a couple of decades. And for large scale solar, we realized that most systems were all fixed tilt. They were all tilted to the south, but didn't track the sun. 
And we got to know through the introduction from DBL, actually, we got to know Next Tracker, which had spun out of Solaria, and we're able to lead their Series B. And Next Tracker is single access tracking for big solar projects. Um, and that was just an explosive growth company. It was a team led by Dan Schroeder that we had known because they'd been involved in power, light, and the solar industry before. And it was a fast, uh, fast growth, fast exit for us. We sold it in 10 months uh, to Flex or Flextronics uh, and it, for $330 million, And it is uh, now deployed, I think we're up to about 50 gigawatts of solar around the world. So super impact, great finance return, both great multiple and great IRR. And that company has led us to several other solar deals. So that's, that's one of my favorites. And it's interesting. It sounds like that was a spin out from a larger company. It was. It certainly was. Yeah, it's, that's not typical for us, uh, but it had been stewarded. There was a larger company called Solaria that DBL and other funds were involved with. And they realized that the tracking system was really the pure innovation that, that, that had a unique opportunity. We typically invest in Series A, B, early growth. But generally, there may be folks, not as often in spinouts as I think about it, but certainly with prior corporate experience in the same sector, right? So, And DBL, you mean double bottom line, Nancy Funds, uh, your, your That's partner right. That's in right. crime. Your partners in the ICM network, exactly. Yep. That's great. And, and how often do you uh, invest with either other ICM members or other ICM funds? It depends on sector, right? So SJF started uh, with the original name was Sustainable Jobs Fund, and we've always had an environmental sustainability element and have built over time education, health, and food verticals as well. And so, again, we, we co-invest with some of the education-related members of ICM, some of the cleantech-related members. So I'd say across our, our recent deals, probably a third have an ICM member in them as well as co-investor, co-lead, uh, et cetera. Do you pitch together? Like when you look at uh, when you start talking to CEOs of companies and say this is who SJF is, does it come up? How how do you bring impact into that discussion? It's impact and it's also sectoral expertise, right? So it's whether it's solar or mobility or the, for example, we've done a lot in reverse logistics and forward logistics. So it's really a conversation typically that's triggered by prior portfolio companies that, that have been successes or growing companies that the entrepreneur would know where impact is integral to their business model. Uh, but it is, I think that it, it varies. We, we do see recently that there are kind of companies with conventional, so to speak, VCs involved where they want an impact VC involved. They want our voice at the board. So that it provides us an edge for access to kind of deals that are perhaps already have significant VC interest. But there are a number of companies where we become, we are the first and sometimes only investors. So we're, we're, we're not necessarily keen on it needing ABCD rounds versus one round and, and we just build a profitable company together. You know, one of the things you mentioned that you snuck in there, which I, I only learned when I was researching this podcast, is that SJF actually stands for Sustainable Jobs Fund. Now, you were a recycling entrepreneur who started a sustainable jobs fund. Can you talk a little bit about the intersection between environment and job creation? 
Yeah, my first venture was called SunShares uh, at coming out of Duke here in Durham, North Carolina, back in 1982, dating me a bit. Uh, and I've always been involved in whether you call it sustainable social entrepreneurship. We were a solar and a recycling company. Uh, and I, the my second venture was really doing recycling investment forums, clean tech investment research. And through that, and I wanted to correct that I co-founded a sustainable jobs fund with Rick DePew. And Rick uh, was really a general partner at Edison Fund up in Princeton, New Jersey. And he had spoken at some of my events and basically turned to me and said, hey, maybe we could start on supporting these companies. They don't quite seem to fit the conventional VC model. And this is in 1999. So it was really in the welfare to work era. So basically said, let's create a fund that invests in sustainable environmentally based companies that create significant jobs for the communities that need them. So that first fund was a CDFI, Community Development Financial Institution. And we, I had gotten loans here in North Carolina from Self-Help Ventures Fund, one of the original CDFIs. And then we've gone through an evolution. We rebranded SDF Ventures and our funds went from 17 to 28 to 90 to 125 to 175 million over the last 21 years. But that core root uh, is not, it's not Sam, Joe, and Fred, right? It, it, there's a mission tied to that that we hope endures, uh, you know, for many years to come and, and is part of what had, had the opportunity for us to attract great talent like Emma to, to what we're doing. I want to bring Emma into the conversation a little bit. Um, so, Emma, I want to we'll, we'll kind of integrate the LP and the and the the impact evolution. Can you talk a little bit? One of the things that's really core to SJF is the diversity, not just that you've personally supported within the community, but also in terms of your investments. And specifically, I think Jopwell is one that is kind of a really interesting play for you. Can you talk a little bit about Jopwell first? and then how that integrates with your broader efforts through the impact community. Sure, yeah, Jopwell is a really exciting portfolio company for us and we're really fortunate to have them as kind of an expert to lean on as we think about diversity and improving our internal efforts and how we support our portfolio companies on all things DEI. So Jopwell is the leading career advancement platform for Black, Latinx, and Native American students and professionals, and really serves as a connector and marketplace for these individuals to find really exciting career opportunities. And on the other side, supporting companies, you know, really large companies um, that are looking to hire diverse talent, um, connecting them to those individuals. And not only do they do this as their core business model, but also then having um, you know, thought pieces and thought leadership and blogs out there where they're really educating on the importance of diversity and speaking out about why, you know, before 2020, even when we've seen this market shift to really focus on these efforts, um, why it is so core and important to businesses' growth. So we, we've worked with Jopwell for a couple of years now since first investing and um, have learned a lot from the company and also relied on them to learn and support our other portfolio companies through webinars for portfolio company leadership and a webinar even for impact capital managers. And as we think about you know creating guides on DEI and creating value for our companies, it's just great to have a portfolio company like that that we're so close to. And what's the revenue model there? So they are selling to large companies. Those are their customers. And then if you are a student or professional who wants to make 
a profile on Jopwell, you're welcome to do so for free. So they're able to leverage revenue coming in from large organizations like Goldman Sachs and the PGA who are looking for talent and then support the other side of the marketplace, really these students and professionals trying to build their own careers. How do you try to impact the uh, portfolio companies, Chad? You've got a wide, you know, a couple hundred portfolio companies over the years. How do you actually bring those kinds of initiatives into those companies? Sure. Yeah. So we take what we we like to call a beyond the boardroom approach to our impact acceleration, and really, it's it's portfolio acceleration at its core. It's focused on driving value for the businesses as they grow, but also driving deeper or greater impact in what they're doing. And like you said, we work across a number of sectors, so really diverse business models. But um, luckily we have folks like Dave who really have deep expertise across our sector, so get to know what, what each business needs core to the space that it's operating in. And then for us, we engage early, we talk about how we drive value in the diligence process, we you know incorporate impact questions and diligence as we're getting to know companies, um, pulling in frameworks out there like the impact management project to really help us better understand all impacts, you know, positive impact, impact risk across the businesses we're looking at. And then post-investment, we do have a large team for our size fund. So trying to devote resources to supporting companies on really all functional areas of the business. So sometimes it looks like exploring new employee benefits to target hourly workforce populations working in a warehouse. Other times it looks like, you know, talking about, um, you know, pipeline strategy and really what a good venture capitalist would do, nonetheless, of being an impact investor. So it really it varies, like you said, but our, our core goal is to drive positive impact and portfolio acceleration for these businesses um, to help them improve. And you know, your focus was on the impact side, but I also think a lot of your metrics that you do are individualized for each portfolio company and are actually tied to the economic out- outcomes. Can you talk about how impact drives alpha? I would say that you know the businesses that we're investing in have impact embedded in the business model, such that as the company scale, impact scales too. So a lot of the metrics that we're looking at are, like you said, business KPIs, you know, students served or patients served, things that really get to the revenue model. Um, something we've been focused on more recently has also been designing metrics that go beyond just that. So it thinks more about outcomes and efficacy data that also are core to business success and drive alpha, but um, are, are also going beyond just the scale of the business. So metrics are a place where um, there's certainly been an evolution internally for us and I think across the whole industry. But um, you know, like you said, a lot of the what we're measuring ties to the business performance and the actual core business model. Yeah, and just to pick it up, I think, you know, other examples across our portfolio, so Vital Farms is uh, an IPO on NASDAQ. We were the first institutional investor there. It's the largest pasture-raised egg company in the country and now moving into other products. And, yeah, they wanted, we were the, it had been, it had already been bootstrapped, company out of Austin, uh, and really had a network of farms, mostly Mennonite and other family farms pr- producing these much healthier, much more sustainably raised eggs. I needed an aligned investor, but the, the, the founder is very aligned on conscious capitalism. And it was only uh, the third uh, public benefit corporation to go public uh, on NASDAQ this in recent months. And so it's been a fantastic result for the fund, certainly financially and in terms of impact for the family farms they support. And in terms of providing a publicly traded sort of model of a, a growing and large 
uh, very sustainable, ethically raised food is, is an example. So again, the 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 mission is so 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 tied to their brands, tied to their products, or interaction with their farmers. Just one example of how that affects decisions in the boardroom is there was a time when there was a glut of eggs in the market a few years ago. And really the management team came to the board and said, it's gonna cost us more, we're gonna run losses, but we're gonna keep paying our farmers the higher contracted price. We're not gonna drop it to the commodity price. And you know that did generate some losses that year for the company, but the loyalty that that engendered with the farmer network for them is just admirable. So. So I think it's that kind of thing where it's it's the staying power of the companies, it's tracting team, it's consumers, it's all the things that we know about you know, building a better business that drives integral value. What were the specific metrics, or a different one with Next Tracker, another company you've been involved? What were the specific metrics that really tied to the economic outcome, though? Yeah, I, I mean, I think for our clean tech and energy companies, it's pretty in terms of climate impact, it's often CO2 mitigation is the and megawatts deployed. And I think one some of the more granular questions are how much credit do you take, you know, if you're part of an ecosystem that drives 50 megawatts of deployment or 50 gigawatts for that matter. I think, you know, I think there's efficacy definitely in our education and health companies. And certainly there's there's patients and and students served. But then it goes deeper than that, right? You have to look at, and you know this as well or better than I, given your focus on education, really what are the end results? Are you getting to that outcome? And is there an independent, some independent research we can do that, that documents that? So it does vary by our companies, but our goal is to really have the board reports, have integral reports on all the key metrics, you know, cost of customer acquisition, all those business metrics, and impact metrics that are integral to the business success as well. Now, in addition to these metrics, you also have all your companies uh, participate, I believe, in the GEARS program, the Global Impact Rating System. I think I got that right. And the B Labs kind of assessment program, and, and even most of them become corporations. Why do you also have those frameworks uh, mandated in addition to the, what you do? And how, how did you kind of decide on those metrics opposed to others? So um, we actually, we were a GEARS pioneer fund, like you mentioned. So we did participate in GEARS for the entirety of the time it was offered as a tool in the market. So we, we really gravitated towards that model because it allowed us to have our companies complete, like you said, the B-Impact assessment, which gets at really all things ESG, you know, the practices internally at a company, as well as some additional metrics that were important to us, SJF, um, focused on workforce, focused on business model, and then get rated at the fund level. So it was a great tool for that and involving a third party in the analysis. Um, that tool actually retired just a couple years back. And so we took that opportunity to take a step back and look at all the things that we learned from participating in GEARS and really analyze the questions that meant the most to us and move towards more of a streamlined model where we took some of those questions, but also tweaked tweaked ones that we wanted to really focus on moving forward. And we talked about being the sustainable jobs fund when we were first founded. So workforce and offering quality jobs to workers at our companies is really important to us um, in driving positive impact. So we ask a number of questions on ESG factors around workforce, around workers, around benefits offered. Um, and then as we just talked about, defining some core metrics that relate to each business model and the you know scale that they're achieving, the outcomes they're achieving, and how we can track that over time. So the involvement of third parties and really supporting industry-wide efforts is something that 
we think really builds the field. Uh, today, it looks like the impact management project and the sustainable development goals and other frameworks that have evolved and really, you know, gotten momentum across the market. And, you know, IMP, for example, is quite flexible and we like that. We like that we can apply it differently to each business that we're looking at, but really through a common language around the five dimensions of impacts that are defined through it. So sustainable development goals are one that, you know, LPs really understand and, and uh, you know, love and that they can look across a number of their own portfolios and investments. So it's really about field building for us and taking what the industry has, um, you know, learned and what they're putting out there and trying to support those efforts too. Just to note one thing, some of our portfolio companies are B Corps, but, but the majority are not. And, it, it, and we certainly can encourage that. I think it's very relevant for consumer facing companies like the Vital Farms. Maybe for a very techie, clean tech company, it, it's a little bit less relevant. The gears assessment would cover both. But backing up a little bit, I think one of the points that it was making is that we are trying to help build the field. And so in our early years, we were part of Opportunity Finance Network as a CDFI and then CDVCA, Community Venture Capital Alliance, and then NVCA, the National Venture Capital Alliance. The reason that we worked with you and Brian at, at Bridges and Nancy DBL and others to form ICM, Impact Capital Managers, was we really did not, for scaling impact venture capital and private equity, you know, starting a few years ago, that we looked around there were a few of us, uh, and now a lot more, as you know, but, but sort of collaborating together on how to build the field and drive, again, drive alpha and impact in an integral way, we didn't have a peer group. And so that was the whole point of starting ICM first as volunteers. And we had MBA interns here in our office in Durham before we, we had the opportunity to hire Marika to, to help, help get ICM off the ground. And so I think it's important that we're trying we don't want to get lost in all the acronyms. <laughs> you know, we want to build the field and have it focused on what drives business success and how that's integral to impact success. And that have entrepreneurs think, oh my gosh, this is so bureaucratic. We want it to be to drive their business, not to feel like it's it's some kind of impediment to growth. Yeah, it it, it feels like in the companies we've been involved together, you do a really good job of sort of aligning the interest. So, you know, as, as we continue through this, uh, as you, uh, it would be great to hear some more examples because um, I think it's actually one of the things that really sets sets you apart. Dave, can I, I ask as part of that, you mentioned earlier that you sort of expanded from sustainable jobs into environment, you know, those were your core pillars and now you've added healthcare and education and, and other areas. Can you talk about how you built a firm and kind of expanded into new areas and sort of what the process was for you, why you did it, and why you think you've been successful doing it? I mean, when we started, sort of the sustainability and the jobs were in the name. And so we, we did both environmentally related investments, which tied to my business background, but also tech, what we called at that time technology enhanced services. Uh, and so one of our big winners in the first fund is a company called Ryla Teleservices, uh, you know, black owned, uh, call center, great employer, uh, but not environmental per se at all. So there's always been a sectoral you know, flexibility with SGF from the beginning. And then I think as we built our team, so of the, of the six on our investment committee, uh, Rick and I have been together for 21 years, and then David, Alan, Arun, Cody all joined more than a decade ago, actually, uh, and, and, and most of us have been together for 15 years. And I think each of those, we've, we've, our, our broad theme has been high growth positive impact. And what we've, what we've said internally is 
We have flexibility on sector if it does those two things, drives venture returns and drives societal and environmental impact. So Cody, Cody came to us with a health and wellness passion and has really built along with Perry now the health and wellness. Arun started in clean tech, but had a passion for education, employment, future of work, and has helped build that theme within our practice. And I think the other key with SGF is we, we, we have a fairly good sized team. We've always had probably more team members than is typical for assets under management in terms of building the expertise in each vertical, but also having those crossover opportunities, you know, to have investments that impact multiple sectors at once. So, um, so that's really been our evolution. And I mean, more recently, mobility, civic tech or gov tech have been themes with investments like Transloc and Waycare. And so, I, you know, I, and I think the key for us is that in the clean tech 1.0 you know, period, a lot of Silicon Valley funds came into clean tech, a lot of them got burned and, and, and never did it again, right? I think for us, we never had to only do clean tech, right? Because we, there, it had to be the best deal. Education, health, food, or energy, what's the best deal this, in this investment committee meeting? That, and it's not like we're forced to stay in one sector. Uh, we, still, we have a few lanes we can go in. Uh, and I think that's allowed us to optimize returns and impact through various investment cycles and hype cycles over time. If an area does get hyped, do you avoid it? Well, it, by we may just because not no deal makes it through the investment committee, right? You know, the valuations have been bid up so high that you just can't underwrite, you know, returns. I mean, a good example recently is the SPAC frenzy, right? Uh, you know, so in areas we invest in, including energy and mobility, there are companies that have gone SPAC for a billion dollar valuation that I turned down a year and a half ago at a valuation of 20 million. Yeah, I mean, just 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 incredible hype occurring. So, so yes, we 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 realize these cycles come and go, and that by virtue of the breadth, I should mention geography too, right? We're pretty rare to be, you know, have an office here in Durham, North Carolina. We have team members in we have offices in New York, San Francisco. But we've always sort of looked outside of those markets. So we have you know, companies in Ohio and et cetera, pretty broad diversity. Actually, I think it's about 25 states where we have portfolio companies. So, so I think we're always looking for those, those sort of underserved entrepreneurs, unappreciated segments where they can really drive unique value. So, Do you feel like uh, you're able to adjust valuations then based on the, you know, you don't need to get to billion dollar exits or, or do you feel like, to achieve venture returns in your sectors, you have to achieve billion dollar exits. We, I mean, we've had lots of exits and only, you know, I think we've had one or two that have been in the billion range. So uh, yeah, most of them have been tens to hundreds of millions and we've generated five to 10 X to 15 X returns. So no, I mean, to that point, um, you know, most of our exits are strategic MA, sometimes probably backed uh, MA. And, we are having that capital efficiency conversation with founders and entrepreneurs and saying, we, I mean, a good example, I'll take one locally, Transloc, a mobility software company where we co-led a series A with Fontanella's partners. And we, we were at this decision point of being of selling the company or raising a big series B. And we had to sit down with the founders and basically say, okay, if we raise this 20 million series B, Let's do the math. You know, right now you're going to take home you know, 10 million and have a great home. You know, to build the value further in this larger enterprise. It ended up being we sold it to Ford Smart Mobility, or by the way, 
to get back to that same value, we're going to have to build this company you know, to multi-hundred millions. And so, so you just have to have that rational conversation. Some companies like Avital Farms do show the promise of raising multiple rounds and achieving that big outcome and, and NextRacker and others. But, but you can also build good quality companies, capital efficiently and uh, exit for a few hundred million or e even tens of millions and do very well as well. So, you know, the whole mantra on unicorns has come up in venture capital the last few years and it's just this Silicon Valley hype. I mean, there's just so many big, so many great companies that can be built across the country that don't have to be focused on that, that size of a number. Does that mean that you have to perhaps have a lower valuation coming in or, or how do you, how do you kind of manage that on the, on the, on the front end? Well, ideally, I have prop, you know, build profitable operations at the company, right? So you don't need as much outside capital. So, um, no, I mean, we've had to stretch on valuations recently for sure. Um, but it is about a management team that's not focused on the B, C, D, E rounds as much as building substantial enterprise value, uh, which may then justify future rounds. But the focus is on the customer, not on new investors, which which we tend to see a lot. So not eyeballs, but actually getting to profitability and sort of real cash flow relatively quickly. That's a revolutionary concept for a venture capitalist. That's <laughs> like most businesses have to do that, right? It's just, it's the it's just the the hype of businesses that we hear about otherwise. Uh, well, it, it feels like there's more and more hype. So uh, appreciate uh, you you sticking. To the knitting. I'd like to ask one other kind of historical question because you, you do trace sort of the evolution of impact from the CDFIs that you mentioned in the first fund through to today, where you know it, it sounds like your LPs are all kind of traditional return-seeking organizations. Can you talk about that evolution and you know what what the key points were where you kind of went went from you know, charitable program-related investment to, you know, hey, we're, we're really going to deliver top quartile returns? You know, I think, I think to start at the finish line, I mean, we just raised our fifth funds, $175 million. We closed in January 2021. And we have a lot of limited partners, uh, you know, probably more than 30 foundation endowments and family offices and pension, et cetera. But I think, I think almost every one of them. I mean, we're very in front of our impact and returns and being integral to them. So uh, they are return seeking, no question, but they also are um, impact seeking as well. And, and we're fortunate you know, to, to, to be able to be somewhat selective about limited partners and want those that really you know, care about the environment, care about communities, et cetera. So, um, so that, that's always been part of our history. But yeah, going back, the first two funds were CDFIs, and so we did have more bank limited partners and foundation limited partners that still really were, you know, our targets with the second fund forward have always been market rate and above market returns. Uh, and so they've always had a kind of that we've always had that target. It's evolved in recent years. Our third fund was under the Obama sort of impact investment SBIC program. So our third fund was an SBIC, but it was unlevered. So the reason we chose to do an SBIC and go through that, all that pain and suffering uh, to get a license was that it was important to the bank. So Citibank was the lead investor for our third fund and, and helped us move from 28 to 90 million. Then for the fourth fund, we debated an SBIC license and whether we needed bank investors and decided 
we, we could, could raise a fund without, and that was the case. So the fourth fund is 125 million, and it was that broad diverse array, and then the fifth fund's in the same trajectory at 175. So I think, I think we've, we've, the support of federal programs, whether it be CDFI or, or SBIC, the support of CRA, Community Reinvestment Act, and banks and foundations that were integral to our success, early support of the MacArthur Foundation, Citibank, Deutsche Bank, many others. Um, and I think today, the broader theme of what's now called impact investing, right, in the last decade, and the work of ICM and Jen and all the others have expanded the universe of limited partners, realizing they can generate great returns consistent with their values. So, so I think the LP pool is definitely broadened, as is indicated by the ICM membership broadening as well, right? Yeah, de- definitely. And and Emma, you know, as you kind of um, c- create the impact report and and in and, and discussions you're having, can you talk about the continuum of of impact? Ver- is there in your mind some continuum of impact versus capital return. So do you have to be an A on both or do people sort of say, hey, we can, we'll take a little less return if we have more impact or, you know, we get an A plus in impact and we'll accept the A minus in, in return. And how do you think about that? Sure. Well, we're always looking to maximize both return and impact in short, but I think one concept that is unique to SJF and something during the fundraising process that I think got a lot of our ultimately LPs excited about what we were doing is this idea of what we call bending the curve on impact. And so it's thinking about you know these businesses where we talked about impact being embedded in the model. So as they scale, you have this kind of collinear graph where you have you know impact on one axis and financial return on another, and you could think about scaling them directly together. But this idea of bending the curve is really getting at how can we drive deeper impact for that same financial gain? And in some cases, the impact leads to alpha, like what we talked about. So it could look like introducing a benefits um, program that makes employees want to stick around for longer and makes them you know, more motivated to be working at the company to drive retention. It can look like building carbon models, both to market to new customers as well as to educate on climate change at companies. Um, there's, a, there's a variety of examples where maybe we're introducing a new you know, high need beneficiary group that's a new customer that brings additional revenue into the business, but also drives deeper impact in the beneficiary group that they're serving. So it's these types of ideas where SJF really does try to be creative and drive impact uh, to be deeper or greater, also drive alpha and try to maximize both of those uh, to the greatest extent possible. But can you define what collinearity means? I heard that you're on one hand on a curve and you're trying to have both go in the up and to the right and you also have bending the curve. So Sure. And you've got all these different groups you're trying. So, so is it really as simple as, hey, we're going to look for businesses that where we can say both are 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 fully aligned, or do you kind of say, oh, if we can add sustainable jobs, it's worth doing something that may not have another specific impact focus? Sure, I think there always is going to be a, a specific impact focus, and I know there's there's curves and lines and graphs, and it's something that we've we've toyed with a lot internally about the best way to describe this concept. Too so. many former McKinsey consultants mucking around <laughs> in impact. Sure. Yep. Um, you should have seen the the dry erase board drawings that we did trying to get to this. But um, I would point people to the impact report that we put out because we did um, we did some explanation on this there too this past year in 2020. But 
Yeah. So you can think about status quo and you can think about doing the impact diligence up front and finding businesses across the sectors that we're working in, which are really, you know, impact driven at their core, finding businesses that will scale and impact will inherently scale. And I think for a lot of investors in impact investing today, that is kind of that's where they are. They're they're checking that box. They're doing their diligence. They're saying this business model as it grows is going to be impactful. And I think where we sit is, um, yes, that might be the case, and that that is the case for the businesses that we're putting money into. But with our with our value add, with our contributions, with our unique perspective on this, how can we how can we do more? Um, and some of that, like we talked about, is about being a good venture capitalist and adding value across all areas of the business. But it is also being that impact oriented voice in the boardroom, uh, being that impact oriented resource, saying, you know, we can help you. Uh, leverage a grant opportunity if it makes sense and if it comes up, or we can help educate your employees on the benefits that they have available to them. And those things do do you know drive retention, they drive business value, and they can quote unquote bend the curve to create more impact than we might have you know thought there was initially at investment when we're really underwriting these deals where impact is part of the core business model. So it's about scale, but it's also about contribution and being being additive in our partnerships to companies across all parts of their business. Daniel, if you need to, to look at the graph, it's page eight of our impact <laughs> report. So that's, that's, you, you can see it there. But I think also we, we do, we should note impact risks as well. And the, 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 the you can't, I think one caution is to say, okay, we checked the box. Gosh, this, this company grows to 500 million. It will have great impact. Because it could be right that there's mission risk, right? We 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 have, for example, had vigorous debates about um, unintended consequences. Some of them, I know you've been, been involved in for-profit education, Daniel, and there there's one company that we looked at. But when we when we looked at the levels of debt that the students were incurring and the actual collections issues with those students and whether they really got good quality jobs in the end. We just ended up scratching our head and saying, you know, actually, you could make good money doing bad things in this company. And we really don't like that. So we, we turned that deal down. And so, so I think you, you, know, you have to look at it both ways. It's not, it's not some simple formula, right? Have you, have you ever gotten into a deal and then made that realization too late? And, and how did you deal with that? We did, yeah. I mean, in our early days, we did some more, um, how shall I say, conventional businesses where we tried to layer kind of an, we used a, kind of an impact, a community development covenant. And we were in with a couple of other community development funds. And there was kind of a commitment to broad-based stock options and broad-based, we try to get, you know, we try to get ownership more broadly held, not only with the senior team, but across the the, the, the teams. And the, the CEO founder, um, Anyway, did not his heart was not in it, right? Uh, and uh, and 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 we tried this way and that and got some progress, but never really got there. And so I think the lesson learned from that was, you know, we've got to we've got to see eye to eye with the entrepreneurs from the get go, and it's got to be sort of self evident in what they built to date. You know, with the the founder and seed rounds and how they're how, just simple things like when you have a pitch meeting. I know you've had this and. Does the CEO founder just sort of speak over any other colleagues or do they allow for contrarian opinions to be expressed? And how's ownership shared in that original founding group? And those kinds of signals, I think we've become much more adept at saying, yes, this, this company, not only what they do, but who they are, their values, they're aligned. We're going to accelerate that. 
But I, we've learned that we can't, if that's not already there, at least the kernel of it, we're not going to try to shoehorn that impact on, onto a company that doesn't have it already part of their DNA. Yeah, it's hard to uh, lead the horse to water. You know, would like to just end uh, with you know, one of my favorite questions, and and Dave has sort of one of the original OG impact investors, and then Emma kind of newer to the scene. Today there are sixty. Uh, actually, we just added three, so about sixty-five firms in ICM uh, investing well over ten billion dollars. Um, in five years, how many firms will there be, and how much will our members be investing? <laughs> now, I've, I've listened to some of your former podcasts, which are all great. Uh, kudos to you. Um, but I, I haven't come up with my number. I, I'm guessing now 225 firms. And what's our AUM today? About $12 billion. $12 billion. Okay. I'd say forty-seven point five billion, actually. That, that, thank you for being specific. That's that's uh, <laughs> underappreciated in our business. So basically, a four x increase. Emma, are you more optimistic or pessimistic than Dave? I think I'm going to be more optimistic, uh, given the growth of ICM so far. You know, we were first founded with about what ten founding members, and we're at sixty plus today. So let's put a six x on both of those numbers instead of Dave's five x. And we can see who's right. So, so, so we'll all have to have a bed over a beer. But is there a point at which every fund manager has to care about impact? And if so, when is it? You know, I think I wish everyone would, and but I don't think that will occur because you know we we are all who we are, humanity. But I think I think when we get to the core, I think almost every investor, when they go home with their family, when they see how the, what's happening with their children and their neighborhood and their community, when they see what's happening internationally climate, et cetera. I think at their core, they would wish that, that all that they were doing was, was aligned with fixing those issues. But sadly, you know, there's this division that many kind of the, you know, the economic Milton Friedman sort of, I'll do all my work and I'll, then I'll do philanthropy separately. But I think more and more folks are realizing we're, we're, not, we're not separated persons, right? We're an integrated I think uh, years ago, Jed Emerson used the term blended value, right? We're, we're, we're integrated individuals. And so I think more and more we're, we're realizing that and the growth of ICM is part of that and the broader growth of, you know, just globally of folks realizing the crises we've got. I think about climate, I think about injustice, et cetera. And that we've got to bring our work activity, our daily, our vocation, our calling and our investment in alignment with addressing those issues. So I think it'll grow, but it'll never be everyone, you know, <laughs> yet till we get to heaven, maybe. <laughs> no, I agree. I would say that it's exciting to hear, even though we've been talking about ESG for you know decades and in, in, in what is now impact investing, to hear that term coming from folks in more traditional finance more and more. I think that's a shift in the right direction and thinking about practices at companies and how they affect the people working there and their supply chain and their customers. So that that I think is momentum and it's progress. And, um, you know, ESG has been around for a long time. But I think as that trickles down to more traditional markets that that will only do more good for for the industry. So um, one day, hopefully it'll, you know, impact investing will be known by everyone. But I think we're still early days on that. And I'm excited to keep uh, driving, driving the education there. Well, it's great having two such happy warriors uh, on this path to bringing a broader sense of purpose 
to investing in capital creation and preservation. So thank you, Dave and Emma, for joining us on the Better Money, Better World podcast. And we look forward to seeing what SGF does in the future. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for the service to the community for you for doing this podcast. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you. This is Marika Spence, Executive Director of Impact Capital Managers. Better Money, Better World is made possible in part by ICM, a nonprofit network of over 60 best-in-class fund managers investing for superior returns and meaningful impact across North America and beyond. Our members share a passion for partnering with entrepreneurs and scaling companies that will realize a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future. If you enjoyed today's conversation, tune in for the next episode of Better Money, Better World. Tell your friends and visit us online at www.impactcapitalmanagers.com.